you're listening to the Deeper Christian Bible Study Series in the Book of Ephesians. Thank you for joining me, Nathan Johnson, on an in-depth, verse-by-verse study of this incredible book by Paul. Now, let's dive into the lesson for today. Well, we've been in the book of Ephesians. So Ephesians chapter 1, if you have your Bibles. And uh, we've been walking through these first couple of verses of Ephesians chapter 1. And uh, there's obviously so much rich content uh, that we're not going very far very quickly, but it has been a just kind of a rich meditation of what uh, Paul is speaking to those in Ephesus. I just want to freshly start off, and I want to start reading verse 3, and read verse 3 down through verse 5, uh, maybe in verse 6, since that's the little section, uh, just to get it in our mind afresh, and then we're going to dive into this. Paul writes this, uh, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless before him in love. He predestined us to adoption as sons to himself through Jesus Christ according to the good pleasure of of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he graciously bestowed on us in the beloved. Uh, just as maybe a quick reminder, Paul's been walking into this blessing section, and he says, You are blessed, which is a phenomenal thought. That I, I deserve no blessing. What I deserve is condemnation. What I deserve uh, is separation from God. And yet, God in his overwhelming love has blessed us. And again, the picture that verse 3 paints is that here is God who is the blessed one. And the blessed one just cannot help himself. He has to do something about the blessing. And so something bubbles up from his toes that just comes up and goes, ah, I need to bless. So the blessed God begins to bless. And what is he blessing? He is blessing us with every spiritual blessing, which again goes back to this idea that every single blessing that God has for you is found in the person of Jesus. That you don't need Jesus plus something. This is not Jesus plus blessing. This is Jesus who becomes your blessing. Uh, So Jesus becomes your love. He becomes your joy. He becomes your peace and your patience and your goodness and your faithfulness and your gentleness and your self-control. Jesus becomes all that you need, as 2 Peter 1.3 says, for life and godliness. You just need Jesus. And if you find yourself lacking in any area of life, what you need is not so much the thing that you think will fix that problem, what you need is Jesus, who becomes the solution for every single issue and circumstance and trial in your life, which is a great thought, because the moment I have Jesus, oh, I can relax, because I have all that I need. Now, as you come into verse 4, Paul begins to describe the beginning of these blessings. So he just starts making a list of the blessings that we have, which are all fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. Now, we've been walking through verse 4, And again, verse 4 says, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless before him. That there's this idea that God has chosen you. Hey, you're chosen. Now again, this is not the last pick on the dodgeball team. Hey, you are God's favorite. You are God's number one pick. I mean, if if somehow if he could line us all up, he would look across the entire line and go, oh, I get get one first pick. Who am I going to pick? That's a tough decision. Mm, You! I'm going to pick you. And you have become God's first pick. Now, I don't know how that works, because if you look at your neighbor, they're also God's number one first pick. 
And of course, I'm his favorite. (laughs) But so are you. So I don't know how all this works. But we know that God has chosen us. And we've talked about this idea that this choosing is personal. This isn't, you know, you just, you know, you just happen to be in this group and he chose the group and, oh, bummer. I didn't realize you were in that group, but I guess you're stuck, right? You're not chosen in that sense. This is, hey, you are individually selected. I mean, he is pointing his finger in your face and he's saying, I'm choosing you. Now, what is the purpose of that choosing? Paul says the reason that God has chosen you, even before he said, let there be light, the reason he has chosen you is that you might be holy and blameless before him. Again, this whole idea of holiness is separation, that you are not to be like the world around you, that God has called you out to not be like the world. He's called you out to be just like himself. God is holy. He is separate. He is other than. And the one who is choosing you is calling you to be like himself because he is holy and he wants to make you holy. Uh, there's that idea of blamelessness. And again, the blamelessness goes back to the little lamb idea, right? Here's the sacrificial system. And before we, we sacrifice the animal, we have to scrutinize the animal. And we got to look the animal over and, and make sure that the little animal is blameless. That there's no spot. There's no broken bones. There's, there's no issues with the animal. That it has to be a pure and spotless sacrifice. And God says, that's what I want for you. Well, how's that going to take place? Well, it's all wrapped up in that idea of before him, which we looked at last time. Again, before him has this connotation of you're literally standing before him, and he, he's, like a, he's, a, he's like a court judge, and he is looking down, and he's scrutinizing your life. And you are before him, and you are being analyzed and judged to make sure that you are holy and blameless. So there's that aspect of this idea before him. But the other aspect uh, and again, when you get into the word before him, has this idea that you're getting nose to nose with him. So how am I going to be made holy? <gasps> you grit your teeth and be more holy. That's not, that's not how, that doesn't work. And again, Isaiah says the best thing that you can attempt in your own effort, in your own ability, is but filthy rags. So how on earth are you going to pull off holiness? How on earth are you going to pull off blamelessness in and of yourself? You can't. The only option you have is to get nose to nose with Jesus and for him to be your full focus and you're to get your life wrapped up in him. And just like in the Old Testament, the moment God showed up somewhere, whoa, it becomes holy. He wants to do that in your life. That he is, he is willing to take that which is unholy, you, come inside of your life and somehow in the, in the coming in of your life, he takes that which is unholy and makes it holy. He is willing to be birthed into a stable known as you. But he is unwilling to keep you there. That he wants to change and transform you. See, he does not want to keep you with a whole bunch of smelly stuff in your life. He is zealous and jealous over this body known as you. And what is he doing? He is only taking your life. He's, he's sanctifying you and changing you and making you holy. He's dragging you in and he's making you like himself. But you, in and of yourself, cannot be holy. So what is the only chance you had to be holy? To embrace the one who is holy. And as you embrace the one who is holy, you find that it's not that you grit your teeth and try to make yourself holy. What you find is that he just begins to make you holy. So Paul is going after this idea that you are called to be like the one who is calling you. Hey, that you are, you are to embrace the one who is holy. And in so doing, he makes you holy. 
that here he is, he's scrutinizing my life and he's analyzing my life. But as he's scrutinizing my life at the same time, it's as I'm getting nose to nose with Jesus that he just, he, he changes me. He, he just, he makes me holy. That's good news, folks. <clears throat> now, as you look at our passage, it's interesting at the end of verse 4, at least in my translation, there's a little line. It's a prepositional phrase. It says, in love. Now, depending on your translation, in love may show up at the very beginning of verse 5. So, here's the quandary. And I'm just going to bring you into some of these problems. The word in love, right? In agape, in the Greek, it's fascinating that some translations say, well, that seems to make most sense, at the most sense, at the end of verse 4. That God has chosen you to be holy and blameless before him in love. Praise the Lord. Now, some translators say, no, no, no. Actually, contextually, it makes far more sense to start it in verse 5, which says, in love, he predestined us unto adoption. And you could say, well, which one's correct? And I'd say, I don't know. So, how, how, do you, how are we to properly understand this idea of where in love shows up? Now, let me give you the big view problem. If you look at your Bible, verse 3 down to verse 14 is the blessing section. And in your English translation, doesn't matter what translation you have, that English translation is split up probably into some paragraphs, into a variety of sentences with a whole bunch of periods, colons, semicolons, commas, all that kind of stuff, right? There's all that kind of stuff in your, in your text. The challenge that we have is that when you look at in the original Greek, verse 3 down to verse 14 is one sentence without punctuation. So, as a translator then, you have to make some judgment calls about what on earth Paul is doing. <clears throat> now Paul, now if you thought Charles Dickens had some long sentences and paragraphs, hey, Paul just is like, buddy, you got nothing. <laughs> Paul is talking about the blessings of God in verses three down to verse 14. And it's just like, he just starts talking. He's like, whoa, let's just keep on going. And he just keeps on going. And he's like, don't put a comma. Let's just keep on going. Hey, no periods. Let's just keep on going. And he just go, 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 go. And he finally gets done. He's like, whoa, isn't that good? And we're all like, could you, could you uh, diagram that sentence for me? <laughs> Paul's like, don't worry about that. Just, you know, let's just focus on the blessings. So the challenge then for a translator is... Well, where do, we, where do we put this? <clears throat> now, we've broken up. Now, you understand the verses. We put the verses in there, right, for the sake of sanity so we can say, hey, look at verse 4, and you all look at, it at the exact same place. But the challenge then becomes when you look at this phrase, in love, contextually, does it conclude verse 4, or does it begin the idea of verse 5? And they are two distinct ideas. They are two blessings, if you will. One, you are chosen. Praise the Lord. Well, what am I chosen? Well, you're chosen before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless before him. In love! It's a great statement. But you realize you've also been predestined unto adoption. How's that done? In love! So where do we put the in love? And I, last night I decided, well, I, I want to look at this afresh. So I pulled up some of my scholarly commentaries, and I was looking at the arguments. And it's funny, depending on who you, who you read... They all, have, they all have different arguments. It should be at the end of verse 4. No, it should be at the end of verse 5. No, it's at the end of verse 4. No, I said verse 5, 4, verse 4, verse 5. And you're just like, people, does it matter? 
So, let me give you your two options, and you can just decide where you want to put it. Sound good? So don't stress out. It's just kicks and giggles stuff. <clears throat> it's all love, okay? It's, we're all, it's all love. <clears throat> if you choose to put it at the end of verse 4, and there's some good scholarly reasons to have it at the end of verse 4, what you're saying then is that you have been chosen. When? Before the foundation of the world. Why? Or, or for what? To be holy and blameless. Before him in love. And the in love then is therefore giving aspect to or it's defining this idea of what it means for you to be before him to be holy and blameless. So the emphasis then of the idea of in love is you and your behavior or your position. Now it's interesting when you look at the scholars, what they'll tell you or what they'll point out is that that prepositional phrase in love most oftentimes follows a statement, and it's usually referring to human love. Several times throughout the book of Ephesians, in love, as a prepositional phrase, it shows up. And I think six out of the nine times that the word shows up, it's talking about human love, not God love. In other words, the, the, the subject of that verse, or the one who's doing the love, six out of the nine times in the book of Ephesians, is humans, not God. Now, God is love. We understand that. We had no problem with that. But in Ephesians, six of the nine times, is speaking about human love. Is this making sense? So some scholars will say, well, it makes sense at the end of verse 4, because more often than not, Paul is using it in a human sense. So if you tie in love to the end of verse 4, what you're saying is that you, before God, are being holy and blameless in love, that your position is in love. Now, if you're like, okay, well, what's the other option? If you put it at the beginning of verse 5, the in love as a prepositional phrase is being attributed to the character of, and how God is choosing or predestining you unto adoption. So it is in this overwhelming love of who God is that this predestination for adoption shows up. Do you understand the two options? Now, here's the question. Which is accurate? Both of them. So if you say, Nathan, which one's correct? I'd say, I don't care. I mean, I care. I do care a lot. But I don't think it matters. Why? Because no matter which side you put it on, it's still true. Biblically. You can take either of those ideas and bring it into all of Scripture, and you realize they're both, they both still are true. So does this, does this change a lot? Probably not. Then you could say, why are you talking about this? It's in the passage. I'm forced to. I did not choose what I was speaking about this morning. It, never mind, I'm not going to say something. <laughs> Do you know how that God functions out of love? That love isn't merely a, an emotion. Love isn't merely something he has on the side. God says, I am love. Now, God's not emotion. You understand that? God is not a feeling. He's not some, ooh, I got goosebumps. He's not that, right? So we use love in a variety of ways as a culture, but God says, I am love itself. If you, if you look at the fullest expression of love, that's who I am. 1 John chapter 4, verse 8 and 16 says, God is love. That's verse 8. Verse 16 says, God is love. <gasps> so he's an emotion. 
No! We do not worship emotions. Oh, so when I get that little goose bump, that's God. No! No, no, that, we're not, you're totally missing that idea. We're, we're not talking about that kind of stuff. We're talking the essence of love. The heart of true agape love. That's who God is. He says the very nature of who I am is perfect, holy, righteous love. Jesus is God in nature. We understand that. What is that? That's perfect, holy, righteousness and love. How did Jesus function? He always functioned out of love. You realize that Jesus was always redemptive. Hey, I'm serving you. I'm ministering. I'm rolling up my sleeves. I'm pouring my life out. I'm, hey, how, how can I serve you? How can I meet your needs? Hey, can I heal you? Can, hey, that's all out of love. It's a redemptive heart. Jesus goes into the temple. He builds a whip. Throws out the money changers. That's redemptive, folks. That was done out of love. Seemed pretty angry and wrathful. I know. Because that love is full of perfect righteousness and holiness. We're not talking about love that just overlooks a bunch of stuff. Do you understand that? That his love compels him. Why, why did he send his son? John 3, 16. He sent his son because he loves the world. But you realize the world has a problem. And he has to deal with the problem. He's not just overlooking something. That's not love, folks. Love, love is not just merely a, oh, well, I'll just forget about it. Love does something about it. Is this making any sense? So God is love. So you mean he's really nice all the time? No. So he's angry? No. He's love, folks. My parents are loving, and they spanked me all the time. <laughs> Last week when this happened, do you know what they told me? <laughs> Just kidding. It wasn't last week. Yesterday, when this happened, do you know what I was told? We're doing this because we love you. And I'm like, if you love me, you wouldn't do that. And they're like, we're doing this because we love you. And I'm like, what on earth? That's not, that's not good kind of love. No, it's a righteous love. Do you realize that God disciplines those whom he loves? He doesn't overlook it. Hey, he's going to send people to hell, folks. You're like, well, that's mean and nasty. No, he is perfect righteousness, which means he wants to have a relationship with you. That's true. He desires all to be saved, according to scripture. That's true. And he, re he lives out of love. Why? He is love. But you realize that he wants a relationship, which means he, you're going to have to be like him. And if you're like, no, psst, I'm not interested. Well, he, what are you going to do with that? You have to deal with that. Uh, there's trash on my counter. And in love, I put it in the trash can. Like, that is so mean and nasty to that trash. No, no, no. For the sake of my home, I get rid of trash. Now, you can extrapolate from that whatever you want to. But do you realize it's not that God, yes, God loves everyone. That is true, biblically. Does he let everyone into heaven? No. I know I'm stepping on some theological toes. Good. Struggle through all this. It's, it's actually a good thing. But God is love, folks. He lives out of love. He thinks out of love. He, he, he re, he's redemptive. And sometimes the most redemptive thing is to punish. 
some of us have such thick skulls at times we need, we need to come to the end of ourselves so we recognize our need for him. What is that? That's love. And love isn't just some mean and nasty thing. Don't, don't misinterpret what I'm saying here. It's, it's not like a, uh, we're going to call anger and wrath love. No, no, no. But there is a righteousness, there is a justice, there's a purity, there's a holiness to the love of God. And God says, I am love. So when he chooses you before the foundation of the world, when he predestines you unto adoption as sons and heirs of the kingdom, how is he, how is he doing that? It's in love. So that is a legitimate understanding of the passage. That God, in his overwhelming love, because he is love, is functioning. <clears throat> now that word agape is fascinating. Uh, it's used in a couple of different ways in Scripture, because this, this, this can get awkward. A lot of times we say that agape is God love, and it is, in a general sense. But that's actually not a good definition, because when you actually look at some passages, there's a few awkward passages in Scripture, which you could look at and study out yourself, that talks about the evil side of love, love. That I love, I agape the world. Well, we're not called to do that. Correct. You are not to love the world or the things in the world. But he uses the word agape. So if it's the God love, you're not to God love the world. In the sense that you are, are wrapped up in the flesh and of the world. Correct? So you have to understand that agape, even though it's mostly used in the sense of this unconditional, unmerited, pour your life out kind of love, which we see in Jesus, it is used in some other instances in Scripture. Is that fair? But if you want one of the best definitions for agape love in, a, in, in the most general sense, this is it. It's an unconditional, unmerited, passionate love characterized by a willing forfeiture of rights or privileges on another's behalf. I'll say it again. An unconditional, unmerited, passionate love characterized by a willing forfeiture or a giving up of rights or privileges on another's behalf. You realize that that's how God functions. He willingly gives up the rights and privileges of himself for the sake of other people around him. Now, the best example of agape love, if you want, like, the number one example, it's a cross. What is that? That's love. Well, that's painful. I know. But you realize that on the cross, here's Jesus, and he says, hey, you can spit in my face, you can beat me to, to a pulp, you can put a crown of thorns upon my head, you can nail me to this tree, and yet I'm still going to overwhelmingly, passionately love you. Why? Because this is unconditional, unmerited, <coughs> a giving up of my own rights and my own privileges for the sake of somebody else. That is agape love. Now again, it's used in other instances, and there's other ways you have to understand this, but in the most general sense, the, most, the way it's mostly used in the New Testament, it's that idea. And God functions out of that. Hey, when God looks at you, how does he see you? He sees you out of that redemptive, holy, perfect, righteous love. That God is not looking down from heaven, waiting for you to make a mistake, and then stomp on your head. And yet we in the church think that he's doing that all the time. Right? Oh, no, I forgot to... I only pray for five minutes and not seven minutes today. And God's like, uh-uh. Car accident. That's not how God functions, folks. And I know that seems extreme, but we think that. 
Don't we? Well, I didn't do my devotions today. <gasps> I'm going to have a bad day. Why? I didn't do my devotions. Yeah, but aren't you wrapped up in Jesus and aren't you meditating upon the word all day long? I know, but I, I, didn't, I, didn't, I didn't do my devotions. Do you see how like we just twist this thing? God is love, folks. He desires you to be like him. And yes, he's going to discipline. And yes, he's going to bring judgment. And, 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 but that's all out of love. Jesus tells this parable of uh, the weeds and the, uh, the wheat and the tares. And the farmer says, hey, or the, the farmer guys come up and say to the farmer, hey, the tares, the weeds, have gotten into the wheat. Should we just yank it up? And the farmer says, no, 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 no. Don't, don't, don't do that yet. Because in pulling up, you might pull up the good wheat. So just wait till the end. And at the end, it'll, it'll make itself clear. So here's the harvest time. And they're doing the harvest thing, and they put the wheat over on this side, and they put the tares over on this side. Now, what do you do with wheat? Well, you harvest it. What do you do with tares? Well, you burn it. Isn't it interesting in the passage, the farmer is not like, ha, 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 burn it. I, that's nowhere in the passage. Isn't that fascinating? Now, of course you've got to burn it. Why do you burn it? Because that's what you do with tares. But it's not some mean, nasty, burn, baby, burn kind of stuff. This is just, what else do, what else do you do with tares? You burn it. So don't... Is this making any sense? So it's not that God is excited to bring about judgment. He's love, folks, but he's going to bring judgment. And it's not some mean, nasty judgment. That's just, what do you do with tares? You just, you burn it. And how is God functioning? He functions out of this nature called love. Are you getting this? Now, that's if you tie it into verse 5. And that is legitimate, and that is true. And that is all across Scripture. God is love. 1 John 4, verse 8 and 16. God is love. God is love. God loves the world. Out of his own self, he just loves the world. Therefore, he sent his son. How is Jesus, how is God, how, how is he functioning? Love. But it's not just an emotion. It's a holy, righteous, perfect love. But you are called into that. So if you tie it into the, into the verse 4, here you are, you've been chosen to be holy and blameless before him in love. Which means, what is your position? Your position in the midst of being before him, scrutinizing and being made holy and blameless, that is to be done in love. That your holiness and your blamelessness, there's a pure love associated with that. Isn't it interesting that when your focus becomes holiness, it often becomes legalism? The, the moment that holiness is the big deal in my life, and hey, you, you are called to be holy. But the moment holiness becomes a big deal of your life, you start putting all these restrictions and it becomes a do and don't list and therefore your life begins to become legalistic. And I am trying to become holy. That's not holiness. Holiness is a person. And I've said this before, but <clears throat> what's interesting is that when you look back at the holiness movement 100 years ago, the holiness movement, they were so, and it was, I think, done out of pure motive, but they were so vigorous and just so excited about holiness that they went after holiness and they lost Jesus because it became a list of do's and don'ts. 
Do you realize had they gone after Jesus, they would have been holy too? Because you can't go after Jesus, the one who is holy, embrace the one who is holy, and not become holy. So it's a focus thing. It's what is central in your life. Hey, should you pursue holiness? Yes. But don't pursue holiness outside of Jesus. It becomes legalism. How do you pursue holiness? Embrace the one who is holy. And in getting Jesus, guess what you get? You get holiness. And there's this idea that even in the holiness and the pure, uh, holiness and the blamelessness, if, if you focus on that, again, it becomes legalism. But what if your holiness and your blamelessness was marked by love, which is a person? See, what would happen if you're choosing and the fact that you're now standing before the Lord? What if that idea was associated with this idea of in love? Oh, so I'm, I'm to love more. No, you're not getting this. This is not you going off and trying to love more. What is that? That becomes legalism. This is what would happen if you got so wrapped up in the one who is love that you just couldn't help yourself. Why? Because you were called to be like him. And the one who is choosing you is choosing you and calling you to be like himself. Which is what? Holy and blameless. And love. You realize that's all over scripture? For example, this guy comes up to Jesus. Jesus, what is the greatest commandment? Jesus goes, that's easy. You quote it every single day. Love the Lord your God with all. By the way, the word all in the Greek, do you know what that word means? All. Hey, you guys are becoming great scholars. <laughs> hey, you are to love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. That this isn't merely an emotion. You realize that? Because whether you feel like it or whether you don't feel like it, you're still called to love with full aggression. Well, what, what kind of love are we talking about? We're talking about an unconditional, unmerited, passionate love characterized by a forfeiture or giving up of rights or privileges on another's behalf. That's how you're to love God. That your love for God is not based upon you and what it means for you and, and how it's going to dictate yourself and your flesh and, oh, is this going to be uncomfortable and, Am I going to be able to fit this into my time frame? Because I have a TV show coming up. And da -da 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 -da. See, this is, not, this is not about you. If you're really going to love God, you're going to say, it actually doesn't matter what it costs me. It doesn't matter how much time it takes in my life. It doesn't matter any of that. Why? Because I'm, I'm giving up. I'm, I'm forfeiting the rights to myself. And I'm aggressively giving that unto another person called God. And I'm giving my heart, my mind, my soul, and my strength unto someone else. His name is Jesus. Do you know what we call people who live like that? Oh, you already know. <laughs> Jesus in John chapter 13, verse 35, <laughs> looks at his disciples and says, Hey, the world is going to look upon you and they're going to know that you are my disciples by one key thing. If you pay the preacher $50. <laughs> well, yeah, obviously they'll go, Oh, you must be spiritual. I wish that's what the text said, but that's not what the text says. What does the text say? Hey, they will know that you are my disciples. Yeah, by this nature thing. By love. And that your love for one another somehow is demonstrating the love, the very nature of God himself. And when the world looks upon that, they go, whoa, you're not normal. You must be a Christian. 
See, what would it look like if your life truly was defined by love? What is the greatest expression of agape? A cross. See, what if your life really was marked by a cross? When Jesus says, take up your cross daily, it's not merely just, oh, all right, I'll wear it around my neck. Yeah, I'll put it on my ears. I'll put, you know, have this Bible cover that has a cross. And whoa. Your life is to be marked by that sacrificial, pour your life out, unconditional, unmerited, just dump your life out for other people kind of love. Why? Because that's how he functions. Uh, if you have your Bible, flip over a few pages to 1 Corinthians 13. And obviously, you know this chapter. It's famously the love chapter. <coughs> but it's interesting, when you get into the love chapter, you realize he's talking about the characteristics, the qualities of agape. And he, he begins in verse 4. He has this great little exhortation in verses 1 through 3, talking about the fact that you can have all this great stuff, but if you don't have love, you have nothing. Now, you can call yourself a Christian, and you can do all the activities of a Christian, but if you don't have love, I'm sorry, you don't have it. But he gets into verse 4 and begins to talk about this agape love, and he says, Love suffers long, or is patient. It is kind. Love envies not. Love flatters not itself and is not puffed up. It does not behave itself improperly or seek... It seeks not its own. It is not easily provoked. It thinks no evil. It rejoices not in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. Why? Love never fails. He moves into verse 13 and says, Now, these three things abide. Faith, hope, and love. But the greatest is love. You come into Galatians chapter 5, and Paul says that the fruit of the Spirit, that when your life is full of the Spirit, it's going to be marked by certain fruits. What is the key fruit that marks your life? It is love. And when you actually do a study on all those fruits, do you realize all of them are merely attributes or outflows of a true love? Paul, in, in Ephesians chapter 5, looks at the men and says, Men, you are to love your wives! I do love my wife. I have this little goosebump once in a while. That's not what he's talking about. He says, hey, you are to love your wife as Christ loved the church. How did Christ love the church? A cross. Which is not, you're to love when you feel like it. This is you love all the time. This is, this is not emotion. This is not, well, if I'm having a good day, I'll love. If I'm having a bad day, I'll think about it. See, it's not any of that kind of stuff. Because that's not how love functions. Love functions always. Love is unconditional. It's always pouring itself out. And we are to love the Lord our God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength. This is not, well, five minutes in the morning. This is all your life. Are you getting this? Isn't it interesting when you come to 1 Corinthians 13 that you could replace the word love with Jesus and it still makes sense? Because he is love. Jesus is patient. He is kind. He does not envy. He flaunts not himself. He's not puffed up. He does not behave improperly. He seeks not his own. He's not easily provoked. He thinks no evil. He rejoices not in iniquity. He rejoices in the truth. He bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. He never fails. That's true! Because he is love. Does that describe you, though? If you put your name there, does it still make sense? Nathan is patient. Well, sometimes. He's kind. On the weekends, he doesn't envy most things. He doesn't flaunt itself. Rarely. He's not puffed up. He does not behave improperly. He seeks not his own. I'm not doing so hot on this list. How are you doing? 
Do you realize you're called to that? Because you're called to love. He is love, folks. And he is calling you to be like himself. And he functions out of the nature of love, which means you are called to function out of love. Why? Because he fills you. And you've been chosen before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless before him in love. Would you go after him afresh this morning? Would you recognize the fact that we have need? That we are not as we should be? And maybe there's one person out here who maybe can look at this entire list of 1 Corinthians 13 and says, oh, I think I have it all. But then now you have a problem because now you have pride. So I think you need Jesus. So I think we all have a problem and we all need Jesus. Don't we? And what would it look like for a group of people in our culture? What if a whole group of men and women in our culture was defined by love? Not an emotion, but the character and the nature of God himself. Wouldn't that turn the world upside down? What if, in fact, you had an unconditional, unmerited, passionate love characterized by a willing forfeiture of rights and privileges on another's behalf? That's how you love God. And then what if the world knew you because that's the kind of love that you had for them? That you were willing to pour your life out no matter what it cost you for the sake of the people around you because that's how God loves you. And you are called to love with that same kind of love. Well, the only option you and I, you and I have is to embrace the one who is love and allow his love to flow in and through our lives. Because I can't love like that, folks. I can't, I can't whip this thing up. Hey, I have a bad day. I'm not thinking about, oh, how can I serve you? I'm thinking about, oh, how can I run away? So you realize the only option I have to pull off this is not just, it's not just how do I be holy and blameless, embrace the one who is holy. The only option I have to actually love has him called to love is to allow the one who is love to somehow in, just infiltrate my life and I begin to live by the infilling of the Holy Spirit where the one who is love starts pouring out his life, his nature, and his love in and through my life, which is not an emotion. It's a life. His name is Jesus. Would you let him mark let your life be marked by love. They will know you are his disciples by that. We need that. Let's pray. Lord, we need you. Lord, I'm just consistently confronted that I am inadequate, that I don't have it. I'm not smart enough. I don't have enough talent. I don't have the ability. So, Lord, somehow you're going to have to come and do something in my life that I just cannot grip my teeth and pull off in my own strength, resource, or wisdom. Lord, I want my life to be marked by love, not an emotion, not just when I feel like it, but what would happen if my life, every moment of every single day, was just soaked, saturated, permeated with your life, which is love. It's a holy, perfect, righteous love. Lord, I need a holy, perfect, righteous love love and dwelling within me because I cannot be holy, I cannot be perfect, I cannot be pure, I cannot have love as I'm called to love in and of myself. So Lord, I just want to freshly come and throw myself beneath the cross and just say, I, I need you. 
Lord, I want to surrender afresh and just say, I can't, but you can. And yes, I know I fully participate, and I know that, hey, somehow this is, <clears throat> I'm pressing into this. I, I get that. But Lord, I, I just can't produce this. I don't have the substance or the strength. So Lord, I just throw myself upon you and ask that you, through your spirit, would somehow begin to do something in and through my life that when the world looks upon can only describe as you. May this world know that you are still God of the universe because they see you, who is perfect love, oozing out of every pore of my body, being showcased through everything that I say, everything I think, everything that I do. Lord, this world needs you. So, Lord, would you show this world afresh through our lives who you are. And, Lord, this morning we just want to turn and we want to worship you, for you are worthy. We don't want to sing songs. We want to worship. So accept our worship. Let's pray this in your precious name. Thank you for listening to this study from the book of Ephesians with Nathan Johnson. If you would like additional resources to help you build your life around Jesus, I encourage you to check out my website, at deeperchristian.com. This podcast is the audio version taken from my video series in Ephesians. And if you'd like to view the video version of this study, you can do so by going to deeperchristian.com forward slash Ephesians. Know I am cheering you on as you build your life around and upon Jesus Christ. See you next time.